0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Have you finished something recently? Maybe you're a second grader, you're watching this, or you're a third grader, or you're a fourth grader, or you're a kid, and you're going to graduate from second grade, you're going to finish second grade, and next year you're going to be a third grader. I'll just say, congratulations, you did it, way to go. Maybe you're a high school student, or a college student, or a grad student, and you have finished, or you are going to finish. Mazel tov. good job. What happens when you complete something, when you finish something? I mean, these days, going to the grocery store is a major accomplishment, right? You come home and you say, I did it, I finished it. My son graduated from college a couple years ago, my youngest son, we threw a party for him. At the party I was told him, son, you did it, congratulations. When I got home, I was thinking about something more important, though, and that was that I had finished putting four kids through college. So I said, I did it! Son, you did it, but I did it. I'm done. What happens when you finish something that matters to you? Well, you can't help it. You say something. You shout something. You feel something. You feel relief. You feel satisfaction. You feel joy. You feel a sense of victory. Did you hear those last words from Jesus on the cross? Because it is a cry of victory. Let me read it to you from John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. Let me read that little section, and you'll pick up the last words. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Matthew and Mark's eyewitness accounts say that Jesus cried something, but they don't tell us specifically what it was. John who was probably closer to the event, actually tells us what that was. It was the word, it is finished. In the original language, it was actually only one word. And I'm going to tell you what the word is, and I'm going to spell it for you. So you, you can look it up and you can study this word, because it's one of the most important words from the lips of Jesus. The word in the original language is tetelestai, T is in Tom, E-T-E-L-E-S-T-E-L. AI. It was a common word in Jesus' day. It was a word from the marketplace. It was a word that archaeologists have actually found on documents, on, on bills. And it's a word that meant this bill is paid in full. It's done. It's over. Notice that Jesus did not say, I think it's finished. Jesus did not say, I hope it's finished. Jesus said, it is finished. In the indicative mood. One Bible scholar translates the word this way. It's all done. It's also in the present tense, the word that Jesus used. Now, that may seem like a nerdy Bible thing, but it's really important because the present tense meant something that happened in the past that has present-day power. It's a word that can change your life today. So imagine this. Picture your favorite cook, your favorite chef, and he and she has is, is just made a meal. I am picturing one of my favorite chefs, Kay Finifrock from Barnum, Minnesota, and she's just made a amazing farm dinner with homegrown beef from the farm and mashed potatoes and gravy and sweet corn from the farm, slathered in butter and homemade apple pie, and Kay says, it's finished, it's done. What's she saying? Well, she did all the work, but what she's saying is, come and eat it. You have something to do. You participate in what I have done. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing when he said, it is finished. He's saying, I did this, but now you can benefit from it. You have power in your life to receive something. Jesus says, it is finished. So what was the it he was talking about? What did he do? Well, there's a lot of ways to look at that, and it's probably just not one thing, but I want to talk about one facet of what Jesus did that was really important if you back up all the way to the beginning of the Gospel of John. So first chapter, John the Baptist says, Jesus coming in chapter 1, verse 29, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist's words were prophetic, meaning that he saw into the future what Jesus' main or one of his main facets of his mission was going to be. He was going to take away the sin of the world. He was going to be the spotless Lamb of God without sin who would bear our sin. Jesus was on a global, colossal, and yet personal mission to take away the sins of the world, and your sins, and my sins. So we ask, what does sin look like? Why is sin such a big deal? What is the problem with sin? And rather than give you a definition, let me just give you descriptions. Let me give you vignettes. Because John chapter 18 and 19, you heard John chapter 19 just read, so powerfully and beautiful. But John chapter 18 is part of the same story. And You see in those two chapters, vignette after vignette of sad and tragic pictures of human beings caught in the grip of sin. And as you're reading this story, I I hope, like me, you're asking, can I relate to this? Can I relate to these people? Because I don't know about you, but I can. Take Peter, for instance. He's one of the main characters in this story. He is Macho man. He's like a lion. He says, Jesus, don't worry. All the other disciples will fall away, but I got this. I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin. Where is he as Jesus is being interrogated? So back in chapter 18, Jesus is hauled off. He's brought in front of people who are interrogating him. Where is Peter? verse 18 of chapter 18, it says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold out, and they were standing around warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. It's an incredibly unflattering detail to this story. And John says it twice. He uses exactly the same phrase. Peter was standing and warming himself. As if to say, here's Jesus in the worst moment of his life. He desperately needs a friend. And where's Peter? Well, Peter is taking a firm stand to take care of himself, to warm himself by the fire. The rock cracks. How about the other disciples? You got to ask in the Gospel of John, where are they? They don't actually don't even appear in these two chapters. They're like completely AWOL. They are unpresent. They remind me of a character in a Wendell Berry novel, this character named Roy, who was not an aggressive man, Berry says. Actually, Berry says, Roy was merely not present. When the pressure was on, Roy eased away. He was not by nature a man very much in evidence, Berry described him. You know, at certain points in my life, I can completely relate to that. Merely not present. When the pressure's on, easing away. How about the soldiers? They live, let's look at the world from their perspective. They live in a violent world, a world that depends on intimidation and harassment. That's their life. That's their world. So how do they act? Well, they just do their job. They're doing their job. I mean, a man's got to make a living, right? So they do their duty. They keep their head down. They never stop and think, how am I part of a system that is unjust, that is oppressing people? They never consider that, or they don't seem to. What about the crowds of people? Well, they don't appear so much in John's gospel, but we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the crowds are absolutely convinced that they're right. They're like just going with the flow of a river, except they have no clue that they're actually caught in this vortex of a rapids and they're heading for the cliff, but they just keep going. Now, later on, they might stop and think, what was I thinking? What were we doing? How did we get caught up in this outrage and hatred and evil? It's a mob. I mean, you don't think we have mobs today? Social media mobs? Literal, physical mobs of violent people? We can easily get caught up in. How about the religious leaders? Well, in chapter 19, verse 6, we hear what they say about this. So they say when Pilate presents Jesus and says, Behold, the man, the, the chief priests and the officers saw him and they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Now, I want to say something really important here because sadly, throughout the history of the church, sometimes people have taken the description of the Jewish leaders in these two chapters and used it to commit acts of violence against Jewish people. That is not justified in the biblical text at all. Actually, it's abhorrent. Jesus was Jewish, let us not forget. They represent power, people in power, people who have positions of influence over others. And sometimes when you combine that with religion, and you don't have the right spirit, it can be a toxic brew. And so they use their religious system as a club to hurt people. And what about Pilate? He represents actually the best of politics. I didn't realize this, but as I was reading this story really carefully, actually, Pilate seems like a pretty decent guy. He knows the right thing, he really desperately wants to do the right thing. But he's got this weak spot. And they, they know it. And so they, they press into it. Look at chapter 19, verse 12. He, they, they threaten Pilate. They say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. That gets him. That makes him crumple crumble morally. He cannot stand that, oh, how he wants to be Caesar's friend. Oh, how he wants that status. Oh, how he wants to be in that inner ring of respectability. He is trapped by his own sin. He is a perfect picture of one facet of sin in the Bible. Sin is not just bad things we do, but it is a power that has us in its grip. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. And Peter, or Pilate, he crumbles. So all of them crack. It's a tangled mess. No wonder the Bible says no one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I want us to see this. Where is Jesus? Where is he? There was a 1995 song by singer Joan Osborne. One of us was what it was called. And she sings, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. What if God had a face? What would it look like? And I would add, what if God was one of us? Where would he go? Who would he be with? Well, that's the story of the Gospels. That's the story of the New Testament. God became human flesh. God became one of us so Jesus could say, when you've seen me, when you've seen my face, you've seen my Father who is in heaven. We are one. So where is Jesus? Well, he's being crucified between two sinners. John chapter 19, verse 18 And 19, there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. All four gospel writers make a point of saying that Jesus was crucified with other crucified men. Luke tells us that they were criminals. John just tells us they're just others. They were just other people who got crucified. Where is he? He's with the lowest of the lowest slaves and criminals, the most sinful of the sinners. He is, as the Romans had this phrase, the Romans had this phrase for, for, um, for crucifixion, damnatio ad bestias, damned like a beast. What's he doing? Well, John chapter 1, 29, he's taking away the sins of the world. He's walking into the tangled mess of human sin in order to be with us. And if he's going to be with us, he has to be with us in our sin. That is the only way for him to be with us. So you heard the the reading from the book of Isaiah. He was numbered with the transgressors. All four gospels say that. So who would Jesus, where would he be tonight? Who would he be looking for tonight? Let me, let me just say this really simply. He's looking for sinners. That's who he's looking for. And, and as I was working on this sermon, I just had a, 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 I felt like a warning from the Lord, like a stab in my heart, like children, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not be respectable sinners who only confess respectable sins And become a respectable community that excludes anyone who's not respectable. Like Pilate, our desire for respectability, our craving, our idolatry of being respectable, holding up an image, can prevent us from getting to accessing the healing stream of Jesus from the cross. Jesus is looking for real sinners. Flesh and blood sinners. I don't mean people that excuse or rationalize or minimize or gloss over or even rejoice in their sin. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who know they need to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner on me, a sinner. I'm talking about people who lie and swear and get drunk and commit adultery or have taken a human life. I'm talking about people who think I could never be good enough. I'm talking about people that live with a chronic sense of self-righteousness who are continually looking down on those people, those horrid people that are behind the problems and everything. I'm talking about people that wake up at 2 a.m. with a sense of dread, and anxiety and a fear of death or disease or illness. I'm talking about people that have maybe thought about suicide this last week. I'm talking about people who numb their pain with too much alcohol or too much pornography or too much escape. I'm talking about people who say, I am so far from God, I could never get back. I am so flawed, I am so unfinished. I don't even know where to start. Jesus did not die for respectable sinners. Let me share with you one of the most shocking verses in any religion, that you would find in any religion. It is a shocking verse, and I want us to feel the shock of it. So Romans chapter 5, verse 6 at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. What an ugly phrase. People that were not godly. People that were not looking for God or acting like God or loving God or thinking about God. That's who he died for. Verse 8, but God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for ungodly godly, unfinished people I want you to hear one word tonight it's a cry from a wooden cross from 2,000 years ago that has power today to bring healing to your life finished exclamation mark we hear a lot of words don't we Maybe you hear words like, achieve, 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 improve, 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 climb, 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 higher and faster, produce, 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 be better, be worthy, be nice, be productive, be efficient, do, do, do. And you wonder, is there a better way to live? Jesus has one word for you. Done. Or paid. Or finished. And not just finished, but beautifully, perfectly finished. Honestly, sometimes as a Christian, I live like I need, like Jesus didn't do it. Or he did it partially, and I need to help him. I need to add, I need to add some finishing touches in order to access what he did. I had this picture this week. I imagine myself standing before what I consider one of the greatest works of art of all time. Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. It's eight and a half by seven and a half feet. It's gorgeous, the colors. The warmth, the reds and the browns, and the use of light, and the picture of that father with the tender eyes putting his hands on his wayward, ragged, lost, sinful son and loving him and embracing him. Now, imagine I'm standing in line and I pull out a crayon and I go through the security guards and I say, I think I need to fix this up a little bit. Let me touch this up a little bit. You think, you're insane. What are you doing? You can't make it better. You are out of your league. There's nothing you can do. What's your response? You gaze at it. You take it in. You receive it. You exult in it. You desire to be in that picture. You want to tell others about it. Now you might be thinking, well, Jesus is not a painting. He's a person. That's true. That's why we need a personal response to what he's done. So you might ask, well, so does that mean I do nothing? No, that's not what the Bible says. Actually, you have a very important response to this gospel of John chapter 3 verse 15 has this great phrase about believing into Jesus. Believing into who he is. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, whoever believes into him, believe is a word of trust. It's like you step on a ladder and you start climbing up the ladder because you trust that it's not going to collapse on you. That's belief. It's trust. But When it comes to Jesus, it's more like this. It's more like saying yes to an engagement proposal. Will you marry me? Yes. I believe. I trust. I receive you. I want to ask, if you have never accepted Jesus, and what's going on in the world is making you think about a lot of things and making you way more open, I want to pray right now. And I'm going to keep it really short and really simple and really non-theological and non-technical. And I'm just going to say it slowly. And as I pray this, if you want to pray it in the privacy of your home after me, I I encourage you to do that if if you really are ready to do this. So here's the prayer. Dear Jesus, I trust in you and I trust in your words. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you finished what I could never finish. Take me as I am. Forgive me. I say yes to you as Lord and Savior. I just want to say, if you prayed that prayer, would you email me? I don't have anything to give you, and I don't have a lecture for you, and I I just want to know. I just wanna know that, that you did that and I'd, I'd love to pray for you and I'd love to hear about your spiritual journey. You can email me at matt at I'll get back to you, I promise. I'll get back to you. Jesus said it is finished, it's done. But it's also a beginning, right? I said it's like, it's like that meal that's being served. It's finished. But now you can start enjoying it. Your whole life begins to center around and flow from who Jesus is. So we obey God and we give to the poor and we, and we, um, we turn from our sin and we repent of our sin and we confess our sins to other people and we, we try to grow in Christlike virtue because we are centered on who Jesus is and what he's done. We live from that security. So I'm going to ask you to do one thing, one thing this Good Friday. Take one word, finished, that Jesus said. Move it from the fringe of your life and move it into the center of your life. And I invite you to even do this. Here's another thing everybody can do. If you're in your home right now, put your hand on your heart. Bishop Stewart's taught us to do this, and I love this. Put your hand on your heart and just hear that word that Jesus said. Well, we'll use the English. It is finished. Say that to yourself. It is finished. Now say it this way It is finished for you, Jesus said. Not just for the whole world, but for you. Remember Grandma K? It's done, it's ready. I cooked it. Now, come and eat. Taste and see. There's a feast. Jesus is saying, I did it. Salvation is achieved. Forgiveness is available. Take and eat. We say that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but you can also say that as an act of faith in your heart that I am going to receive everything Jesus has done. One word. Three words in English. It is finished. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As a part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit Churchres.org.